Section 22 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 3, Part 1. The inimical conduct of the Princess of Orange towards her father, which commenced a few months before his extension, caused him to bestow a double portion of fondness on her younger sister. Anne had, in her infancy, been the spoiled favorite of her mother, while her father lavished his most tender affections on her eldest sister. At this time, Anne was the best beloved of his heart. He was never happy out of her presence. He was never known to deny a request of hers, though it was not very easy for her to make one, since he anticipated her every want and wish. Of course, her rank and dignity were greatly augmented when he became the reigning sovereign. Charles II died on the birthday of Anne, February 6th, 1685. All thoughts were directed to her on her father's extension, for the people fully expected the succession would be continued by her descendants. She had brought into the world a daughter in the reign of her uncle, but this child scarcely lived to be baptized. There was, however, speedy promise of more offspring, insomuch that the Princess Anne could take no part in her father's coronation, St. George's Day, 1695. Then beholding it from a clothes box in Westminster Abbey, which was prepared for her below that of the ambassadors. The Princess Anne heard herself mentioned at the coronation of her father in the following prayer. O Lord our God, who upholdest and governest all things in heaven and earth, receive our humble prayers for our sovereign Lord, James, set over us, by thy grace and providence, to be our king, and so together with him bless his royal consort, our gracious Queen Mary, Catherine, the Queen Dowager, their Royal Highnesses Mary, the Princess of Orange, and the Princess Anne of Denmark, and the whole royal family. Endue them with thy Holy Spirit, enrich them, etc., etc. Concluding in the words of the supplication for the royal family in our liturgy. It is a remarkable circumstance that James II thus particularly distinguished both his daughters by name and title in this prayer, when only the heir apparent, among the children of the sovereign, or at most an heir presumptive, is usually mentioned. In all probability, he thus designated them to prevent all disputes regarding their title to the succession in case of his death, as their mother was only a private gentlewoman. The Princess of Orange and the Princess Anne were certainly thus named in the liturgy every time divine service was celebrated by the Church of England until they deposed their father. It is an instance that he was not disposed in any way to slight their claims, either to royalty or his paternal care. James II was kinder to his daughters than George II to his heir, for in the very volume which gives this information, a similar prayer in the very words is quoted, but only for King George and Queen Caroline, neither Frederick, Prince of Wales, nor their children, are named. Great friendship apparently prevailed at the epoch of the coronation between the queen, her stepmother, and the princess Anne. Before the newly crowned queen, Mary Beatrice, commenced her procession back to Westminster Hall, she entered the box of the princess Anne to show her dress and hold friendly conference. The princess Anne and Prince George of Denmark conversed with her a considerable time. About a month afterwards, the Princess Anne accompanied the Queen to behold the grand ceremony of the King's opening his first Parliament, 
both Anne and her stepmother were on the right of the throne. They considered themselves perfectly incognito, and the Princess of Denmark had the satisfaction of hearing the Pope and the Virgin Mary fully defied and renounced before the Catholic Queen. This was on the 22nd of May, only ten days before the birth of the princess's daughter, who was baptized Mary, after the Princess of Orange. James II announced this event to his son, the Prince of Orange, in one of those familiar letters he wrote to him almost every post. My daughter, the Princess of Denmark, was this day brought to bed of a girl. I have not time to say more now, but to assure you that I shall always be as kind to you as you can desire. Three days afterwards, the king mentions his uneasiness regarding her health in another letter to William. My daughter was taken ill this morning, having had vapors, or hysterics, which sometimes trouble women in her condition. This frightened us at first, but now, God be thanked, our fears are over. She took some remedies, and has slept after them most of this afternoon and evening, and is in a very good way, which is all I can say to you now, but assure you of my kindness. The state and homage James II allowed his youngest daughter to assume at Whitehall Chapel are very remarkable. James II himself went to Mass, but he permitted his daughter Anne to occupy the royal closet at Whitehall and at other palace chapels, and it was his pleasure that the same honors were to be paid to her, as if he were present in person. Evelyn, being present at Whitehall Chapel, saw Dr. Tennyson make three congés toward the royal closet. After service, Evelyn asked him why he did so as King James was not there. Tennyson replied, that the king had given him express orders to do so whenever his daughter, the Princess Anne, was present. The place of the princess was on the left hand of the royal seat. The clerk of the closet stood by her chair, as if the king himself had been there. This anecdote is a confirmation of the positive assertion of James himself and other authors, that he neither attempted to impede or persecute her in her attendance on the Church of England worship, but rather to give every distinction and encouragement to it. It was, perhaps, an impolitic indulgence to feed his daughter's appetite for trifling ceremonials of bowing and personal homage before the altar, as if she had been the visible head of the established church. But James II, though an acute observer of facts, which he skillfully combined as a commander or financier, knew nothing of the higher science of the springs of passion on the human mind. He treated his daughter Anne as the ultimate heiress to the British throne. He pampered her low ambition for the mere externals of majesty, without considering that she would not choose to relinquish this distinction at the birth of a brother. It is well known that the Princess Anne was a great church-goer, Indeed, church was to her a scene of lofty pomp and public grandeur, such as she enjoyed under no other roof. The following letter, addressed to Dr. Francis Turner, Bishop of Ely, was written soon after her father's extension. In what month, there is no date to prove, perhaps between the births of her daughters, Mary and Sophia. The princess requested him to keep a place for her in Eli Chapel to hear Dr. Ken expound the church catechism, and her letter, though written with her usual disregard of grammar and orthography, is more creditable to her head and heart than the rest of her correspondence. Princess Anne of Denmark to the Bishop of Eli I hear the Bishop of Bath and Wells expounds this afternoon at your chapel, 
and I have a great mind to hear him. Therefore I desire you would do me the favor to let some place be kept for me, where I may hear well, and be the least taken notice of, for I shall bring but one lady with me, and desire I may not be known. I should not have given you the trouble, but that I was afraid, if I had sent anybody, they might have made a mistake. Pray let me know what time it begins. The augmentation of revenue, which the Princess Anne received from her father, was fit for the heir apparent of an empire. James, at his extension, made up her allowance to £32,000, being more than the income at present settled by Parliament on His Royal Highness, Prince Albert. When tested by the great difference of financial arrangement from the present day, the exceeding is enormous of such a sum in solid money. The whole yearly expenditure of the realm was, in the reign of Charles II, averaged at one million and a half per annum. This sum, with the exception of the crown land income, constituted the whole outlay of king and state. From this revenue, £32,000 bestowed on the Princess Anne seems a liberal share. James II, by his financial skill and his vigilance in defending the taxes from the rapacity of those who farmed them, raised the revenue of Great Britain to two millions two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, with which small sum he covered all expenses and maintained a navy victorious over the seas of the world. The value of the allowance he gave to his daughter Anne before the funded debt took place must have been more than double that sum in the present day. It cannot be denied, wrote a contemporary who had belonged to the court of James II, that the king was a very kind parent to the Princess Anne. He inquired into her debts at Christmas, 1685, and took care to clear her of every one. Yet she made some exceedings the year after, and Lord Godolphin complained and grumbled, till her father paid what she owed without a word of reproach. The Princess Anne, from the hour that another husband was provided for her, wisely thought no more of the accomplished Earl of Mulgrave, who subsequently married her illegitimate sister, Catherine. The Prince of Denmark was considered an example of the domestic affections, and proved a kind, quiet husband. His easy and sensual life in England very soon stifled his warlike energies under an excess of corpulence. He could imbibe much wine without visible signs of inebriation, yet a small portion of his potations would have reversed the reason of a temperate man. Charles II reproved the prince, in his jocose manner, for his tendency to sluggish indulgences. Unfortunately, the partiality of her Danish consort for the pleasures of the table encouraged the same propensities in his princess, and he finally taught her to drink, as well as to eat, more than did good either to her health or intellects. Although the Princess Anne and the Prince of Denmark were nearly every twelve-month the parents of children, yet their little ones either expired soon after they saw the light, or lingered only five or six months. Their deaths were probably occasioned by hydrocephalus, which, when constitutional, sweeps off whole families of promising infants. The Duke of Gloucester languished through his little life with the same complaint. The third daughter of the Princess Anne and Prince George of Denmark was born in May 1686 at Windsor Castle. Lady Churchill and Lady Rosecommon were godmothers to this infant and gave it the name of Anne Sophia. The baby was healthy, 
Although the little Lady Mary was weakly and languishing, yet the youngest gave every hope of reaching maturity. These hopes were cruelly blighted six months afterwards. Prince George was taken very ill at that time, and remained many days in actual danger of death. The princess nursed him most assiduously. Scarcely was she relieved from the hourly dread of seeing her husband expire, when first the little lady Sophia suddenly fell ill, and died on her mother's birthday, and the second anniversary of the decease of Charles II. The eldest infant had for months been in a consumption. She expired within a few hours. Thus the princess was left childless in one day. Rachel, Lady Russell, draws a pathetic picture of Anne's feelings, divided as they were, between grief for the bereavement of her offspring and anxiety for her husband. Her letters are dated February 9th and 18th, 1686 or 7. The good princess has taken her chastisement heavily. The first relief of that sorrow proceeded from calming of a greater, the prince being so ill of a fever. I never heard any relation more moving than that of seeing them together. Sometimes they wept, sometimes they mourned in words, but hand in hand, he sick in his bed, she the carefulest nurse to him that can be imagined. As soon as he was able, they went to Richmond Palace, which was Thursday last. The poor princess is still wonderful sad. The children were opened. The eldest was all consumed away, as expected, but the youngest quite healthy, and every appearance for long life. The infants were buried in St. George's Chapel, Windsor. On the interment of the little Lady Sophia, the burial place of her grandfather, Charles I, was discovered in the chapel. Although the date does not agree with the demise of these infants, yet this letter of Mary, Princess of Orange, to her brother-in-law, Prince George of Denmark, could not have pertained to any other occasion. Mary, Princess of Orange, to Prince George of Denmark. Monsieur, my brother, I have learned with extreme concern displeaser the misfortune of my sister by your letter, and I assure you that it touches me as nearly as if it had happened to myself. But since it is the will of God, it must be submitted to with patience. We have great cause to praise this good God, that my sister is in such a good state, and I hope will re-establish her health entirely, and together bless you with many other infants, who may live to console their parents for those who are dead." I wish for some better occasion to testify to you how much I am, monsieur, my brother. Votre très affectu, sore et servante. Marie. From Lou, this 13th of November. A monsieur mon frère, le prince George de Denmark. At the succeeding Christmas, notwithstanding the liberality of her allowance, the princess Anne was found to be overwhelmed with debt. As there was no outlay commensurate, with a second extravagant defalcation, Lawrence Hyde, Lord Rochester, the uncle of the princess, began to suspect that some greedy favorites secretly drained her funds. He did not keep his suspicions to himself, and the person who testified consciousness by furious resentment was Sarah Churchill. The favorite, in consequence, visited him through life with active hatred. Few pages of her copious historical apologies occur without virulent railings against this Lord Treasurer, his wife, or some of the Clarendon family. Lady Clarendon, says Sarah Churchill, in one of her inedited papers, Aunt by marriage to the Princess Anne, 
was first lady of her bedchamber when the princess was first established at the cockpit when lord clarendon was made lord lieutenant of ireland which obliged my lady clarendon to leave her service the princess was very glad because though she was considered a good woman the princess had taken an aversion to her it was soon guessed that i must succeed her in her post and at this time the princess wrote to tell me that she intended to take two new pages of the backstairs she having then but two one of whom was extreme old and past service but that she would not do it till my lady clarendon was gone that i might have the advantage of putting in the two pages meaning that i should sell these two places for in those times it was openly allowed to sell all employments in every office and upon this established custom and direction from the princess as it was not to be expected that i should immediately set up to reform the court in this respect i did sell those places and with some other advantages they came to one thousand two hundred pounds a tolerably round sum of money before the funded debt took place these pages were roman catholics and were probably privately assisted into their situation of keeping the back stairs of the dwelling rooms of the princess by some official in the court of king james of that religion whose interest was concerned in the proceedings of anne to know who went and came and what they said and did but as soon as sarah churchill had comfortably pocketed her one thousand two hundred pounds the prince and princess of orange by some means discovered that the two pages of their sister anne's backstairs were roman catholics their vigilance on a point important to the good success of the coming revolution roused the princess from the sublime satisfaction in which she had reposed since her needy favorite had made so excellent a market and she was forced to command the instant dismissal of her roman catholic attendants at the door stairs of her sitting rooms there can be no doubt that some one had paid the enormous cost of their places that intelligence might be given to the princess's father of her movements that king james had placed them himself is impossible for he had no suspicion of anne and had he taken any underhand measures to watch her conduct his ruin could not have fallen on him unawares as it did accelerated by his children the warning of the princess of orange not only displaced these dangerous watchers on the conduct of the princess anne but had the consecutive result of obliging sarah churchill to refund eight hundred of the twelve hundred pounds she mentioned having recently netted on the occasion however four hundred pounds clung to her fingers which was a goodly gain for an ineffectual recommendation it is nevertheless to be feared that the personal hatred which avowedly had previously subsisted between the princess of orange and sarah churchill was not soothed by the painful but inevitable process of refunding the eight hundred pounds it is worth remarking that the lady herself quotes the anecdote in support of her own warm self-praises as an instance of her scorn of making money by selling offices in her mistress's household nevertheless she names twelve hundred pounds as her gains and only eight hundred pounds as her restitution therefore she still retained a very handsome balance by the transaction one of these roman catholic pages of the name of gwyn had been a servant of the princess anne of some standing she secured to him a salary for life in compensation for the loss of his place on account of his religion 
in pecuniary transactions anne was always generous to the utmost of her ability she discharged her old servitor for political reasons but left him not to starve the accounts of the princess passed through the hands of one of sarah's familiars whom she had introduced into the establishment at the cockpit assuredly if rogues write accounts of their conduct they ought to be gifted with long memories a mr mall having proved ungrateful to sarah churchill some months after the revolution she recriminated in the following words i had not only brought him to be bedchamber man to the prince when he was quite a stranger to the court but to mend his salary had invented an employment for him that of overlooking the princess's accounts the result of this bright invention was a figuring on the side of the debit column of the princess's accounts seven thousand pounds higher than the credits anne was very unhappy in consequence and sent to her father to lend her the deficient sum king james walked into the presence of his daughter on receiving this intelligence so unexpectedly that sarah churchill and another lady of the princess's bedchamber lady fitzharding had only just time to whisk into a closet and permitted these women to remain there as spies and eavesdroppers listening to the confidential communication between her father and herself the king gently reminded her that he had made her a noble allowance and that he had twice cheerfully paid her debts without one word of remonstrance but that now he was convinced that she had some one about her for whose sake she plunged herself into inconveniences of these his paternal affection was willing once more to relieve her but he added that she must observe a more exact economy for the future the princess anne only answered her father with tears the moment king james departed out burst the two eavesdroppers from their hiding-place lady churchill exclaiming with her usual coarse vehemence oh madam all this is owing to that old rascal your uncle it is not wise for ladies whether princesses or otherwise to suffer their women to call their uncles or fathers old rascals to their faces and in their hearing this abused uncle lawrence hyde was a lord treasurer of whose honesty the flourishing revenue of a lightly taxed country bore honorable witness being devoted to the reformed catholic church of england he would not retain his office when he found that his royal brother-in-law was bent on removing the penal laws and introducing roman catholics into places of trust the hatred of his niece and her favorite was not appeased by his resignation of the treasury department this office which was the object of lord sunderland's desires and of his long series of political agitations and of his pretended conversion to the roman religion seemed now within his grasp but james the second was too good a financier to trust his revenue to the clutches of a known inveterate gambler he put the treasury into commission associating lord sunderland with two other nobles the furious animosity with which the favorite of the princess of denmark pursued him her mistress following her lead proves that neither of them had the slightest idea that sunderland was working a mine for the ruin of his master parallel to their own meantime the princess was forced to restrain her expenditure whether by gambling or by gifts to the churchills she had impaired her revenues and overwhelmed herself with debts 
This seems to have been the spring of the general enmity the princess and Lady Churchill felt against all James II's treasurers, from whom they both dreaded remonstrance. Since the favorite of Anne previously appeared on these pages, she had become Lady Churchill. By the influence of the king, when Duke of York, her husband had been created Lord Churchill, December 1683, and given more substantial marks of favor, which, though trifling in comparison with the enormous wealth this pair afterwards drew from their country, was enough to deserve gratitude. However ignorant, the Princess Anne and her favorite were, that Sunderland was an ally in the same cause with themselves, the Princess of Orange was well aware of it, for while he was effecting to be a convert to the Church of Rome, and was the Prime Minister of James II, he was carrying on, by means of his wife, an intriguing correspondence with William of Orange. A very extraordinary letter, in one handwriting, but in two very different styles of diction, the joint composition of this pair, was found in King William's box of letters after his death at Kensington. The first part of it, the composition of the male diplomatist, wholly relates to the best manner of circumventing James II's endeavors to cause Parliament to abolish the Penal and Test Acts, and contains a warning to the Prince of Orange not to be induced to express a wish thereto. The postscript, or second letter, is an emanation from the mind of Lady Sunderland, and is meant for the Princess of Orange, though personally addressed to her spouse. It appears written under some dread, lest the double game they were playing should be detected by James, who had, it will be observed, already suspected that Lady Sunderland corresponded with his daughter Mary. Lady Sunderland to the Prince and Princess of Orange. I must beg leave of your highness to enclose a letter for Mr. Sidney, who I hope will be with you very soon, and till he comes, I beseech you to make no answer to my letter for fear of accident, for this had gone to you two posts ago, but that an accident happened, I thought it best not to pass over. Some papists the other day, that are not satisfied with my Lord Sunderland, said, that my Lord Sunderland did not dance in a net. For they very well knew that, however, he made King James believe there were dispensations from Holland as well as from Rome, and that they were sure I held a correspondence with the Princess of Orange. This happened the day I first heard of the propositions which I have writ, for example, about the Test Act, which made me defer sending till King James II spoke to me of it, which he has done. And as I could very truly, so I did assure his majesty, that I never had the honor to have any commerce with the princess, but about treacle water or work, or some such slight thing. I did likewise assure his majesty, that if there had been any commerce, I should never be ashamed, but on the contrary, proud to own it, seeing he must be sure that the princess could never be capable of anything with anybody to his disservice. Now how this fancy came into his head, I cannot imagine, for as your highness knows, I never had the honor to write to you at all till now, so the Princess of Orange knows I have been so unhappy as to have very little acquaintance with her, till of late I have had the obligation of my Lady Semple and Mr. Sidney, to have had an occasion of writing to her, which I value, and will endeavor to continue and improve, by all the zeal and esteem for her, that I am capable of, to my last breath. 
I have the ill luck to write a very bad hand, which if your highness cannot read plain, and few can, I humbly beg of you to keep it till Mr. Sidney comes, who is used to my hand. If at this man's return, suppose her messenger, I can but hear that my letter came safe, and that you pardon the liberty I have taken, I shall be very much at ease. If by the bearer, your highness will be pleased to let me know my letter came safe to you, I shall be very happy. A. Sunderland. This correspondence of the Princess of Orange with Lady Sunderland was followed by the continual efforts of the princess for communication with every person, either adverse to her father or connected with his political opposers. It is to be feared that her commencement of correspondence with the illustrious Rachel, Lady Russell, had not for its object the generous sympathy of her bereavements, which that lady deserved from everyone, or it would have been offered years before. The following is an extract from its first opening. It is indeed elaborately condescending. It seems in answer to some admiration for the princess expressed by Lady Russell to Dykvelt, the Dutch envoy. At least, such is the opinion of Dr. Birch in his abstracts from the mass of the correspondence of the royal family at this period to which he had access. It is a historical misfortune that the originals cannot be referred to, as it is seen only darkly through the extracts of the chaplain of the Princess Anne, who sometimes limits his extracts to five words. The Princess of Orange observes that she sends her letter by Mr. Herbert. The Princess of Orange to Rachel, Lady Russell. Hounslar Dyke, July 12, 1687. I have all the esteem for you which so good a character deserves, as I have heard given of you by all people, both before I left England and since I have been here, and have had as much pity as any could have of the sad misfortunes you have had, with much more compassion when they happen to persons who deserve so well. James II had previously felt uneasy at the proceedings of Dykevelt in England, which he expressed in a letter to his daughter Mary, thus. Windsor, May 30th, 1687. I have reason to fear that Mynheer Dykevelt has taken wrong measures of things here, by reason that many, who are not well affected to my person or government, have plied him very hard since he has been here. The king then recapitulates what he has done for the good of the monarchy and nation in general. Probably there were some religious topics discussed by James, for there followed soon after an extract from Mary's reply. Hounslark Dyke, June 17, 1687. When you will have me speak as I think, I cannot always be of the same mind your majesty is. What you do seems too much to the prejudice of the church I am of for me to like it. The letters which did honor to the humanity of both father and daughter followed these. Mary had requested her father to interfere with his mighty power, as Ocean King, to obtain the liberty of the crews of some Dutch fishing boats taken by the Algerines. In this, she was certainly successful, or the transcriber would have eagerly noted the contrary. Besides, the suppression of pirates was a noted feature of her father's government. When James II's intention of abolishing the penal laws became apparent, soon after the embassy of Penn, the Princess of Orange wrote the following letter to Sancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury. The Princess of Orange to Archbishop Sancroft, Lou, October 1st, 1687. 
though i have not the advantage to know you my lord of canterbury yet the reputation you have makes me resolve not to lose this opportunity of making myself more known to you than i have been yet dr stanley can assure you that i take more interest in what concerns the church of england than myself and that one of the greatest satisfactions i can have is to hear how all the clergy show themselves as firm to their religion as they have always been to their king which makes me hope god will preserve his church since he has so well provided it with able men i have nothing more to say but beg your prayers and desire you will do me the justice to believe i shall be very glad of any occasion to show the esteem and veneration i have for you marie to the archbishop of canterbury at the first receipt of this letter, the heart of the old man warmed towards the writer. Sancroft was suffering under the double affliction of seeing his king, the son of his beloved master, an alien from the Church of England, and even finding indications of persecution from him. Among his papers was found a rough draft of an answer to Mary's letter, in which, rather in sorrow than in anger, he thus offers an apology for his royal master's cessation from the Reformed Church it hath seemed wrote the archbishop good to the infinite wisdom to exercise this poor church with trials of all sorts but the greatest calamity that ever befell us was that wicked and ungodly men who murdered the father that is charles i likewise drove out the sons as if it were to say to them go and serve other gods the dismal effects hereof we feel every moment and although this were it much more cannot in the least shake or alter our steady loyalty to our sovereign and the royal family yet it embitters the comforts left us it blasts our present joys and makes us sit down with sorrow in dust and ashes blessed be god who hath caused some dawn of light to break from the eastern shore in the constancy of your royal highness and the excellent prince towards us the letter continues with tender and paternal expressions to the princess of orange as one who like mary in the gospel had chosen the better part he speaks of himself as an old man sinking under the double burden of age and sorrow and he signed himself in the beautiful phraseology of an earlier period her daily orator at the throne of grace the extraordinary historical circumstances relating to the princess of orange and sancroft archbishop of canterbury renders every incident which connects their names interesting it is worth remarking that sancroft's mind misgave him and he never sent the letter he had written but avoiding confidential discussion he merely acknowledged the honor with expressions of courtesy End of section twenty two